0: Outside the box of religious obligation lies a road less traveled into the heart of the father's affection, slinging
1: freedom all over the place. This is The God Journey. Wayne, I think I found my favorite term of endearment for my daughter Evie. Oh, the younger one. The younger one. Mm -hmm. And do you have one for the older one already? I do. So Eliana has been Elbug since, I mean, since she was little, little, very, very little. I've played with a few different nicknames in terms of endearment for Evie. And this morning she was sitting on my lap. She really likes to snuggle in the morning, but she's been kind of going through a little bit of a spicier mood lately Mm. as far as showing some of her own wants and desires as of late. And if you don't know, my daughter, Evie, has very bright red, extremely curly hair, like little ringlet curly hair. And so she and I were sitting this morning and I called her Ginger Snap this morning. And I I think I found it. You like it. I like it. She's my little Ginger Snap. Is that a cookie Um, of some kind? Is that what that is? It is. It's. It is a cookie, but it's a play on words in regards to her being a red, my my spicy redhead that I love so much. Okay, and so there you go. So you got the sweet and the spice, and yeah. L, my older daughter, she came running in, and was like, "Well, what's my name, Daddy?" I was like, "You know what it is, L bug." Oh, yeah, I'm L bug, and so then she just ran off again. So, okay. uh, but it was a fun way to start the morning this morning. Sounds like it works even though we had flu in our house all night last night. So that was a great time. Oh, I can't wait until my toddlers have their immune system built back up. That's going to be a glorious day. Yes. Between the time when they're potty trained and have an immune system, it's going to be a glorious experience. We're looking forward to getting our puppy out of the cage at night. So she doesn't have to wake us
0: up once she learns house training and doggy door and all that stuff. But Ah. we're still splitting nights. Last night was mine. So we're both half asleep today. Plus I'm... Half blind, I had my eyes dilated earlier today and still, Ooh. they're not coming back to right yet.
1: Shoot the real bright light into your eyes, like you have to look into... The- oh, yeah, yeah, all that stuff. Oof. Yes. My age,
0: man, they look for macular degeneration, look for glaucoma, look for cataracts, look for, look for, look for, look for, look for... Every year, they've got to probe all this stuff again, and I was like, oh my gosh. But every year, <laughs> she says, man, you have great eyes. You have very healthy this, very healthy that, retina's great. She says small, really? shade of cataracts me. in each eye, but doesn't look like anything for a while, so. There you go. Which is important to do. I'm Wayne <laughs> Jacobson. And I'm Kyle Rice. And welcome. We're December 15th. We're kind of getting to the end of the year. So we'll have uh, one more there podcast and then take a break.
1: Yeah, it's wild to think that this year is coming to a close. It's been, at least for the, the Rice family, it has been a full one. There's been lots of change and new adjustments and all kinds of expectations. So it's been a very good year, but a very turbulent Change filled. I don't I'm not entirely sure how to even categorize this. Last
0: yeah, year. we both had that kind of year where you know, if uh you're not know, supposed to have one or two of those things a year and you put about seven of them in before you go nutso, Yeah. Yeah. We've yeah, had our like share of transitions this year as well. So <laughs> plus we have the bigger transitions still going on. That's wonderful though. I uh, just yeah. it's wonderful. It's yeah, wonderful what God does inside the redemption that He extends to people who are hurting and broken and been devastated in some way and just keep leaning into that space, I guess, you know, it's not easy and it's not quick. And I know people get tired of the process and yet the process is part of the healing. It's not, it's not God waiting. It's not God saying, I'm going to get better to do So I'm going to wait till (laughs) March of 2027 to do something here. It's just, he's always working. And -hmm. sometimes we're cooperating better and sometimes
1: we're cooperating not so well. (laughs) When I was in my younger days of walking with him, it felt like he was a little more invasive as far as directive. And this is where I want you to go. And there was pretty clear invitation type stuff at times. And like the, the chunks of movement were, it felt very blocky as far as like, just, uh, how do I want to say this? Like there was, It felt like I mean it was more like Hosea two where he was he was hemming me in I was running into the thorn bush I'm getting pulled into the desert and it, it doesn't feel that that intense or that and it feels more like nudges and invitations and collaboration than it does more of that intense directive I don't know what are your thoughts on that well, what do
0: you chalk that up to is what I'd want to know
1: uh, I, I mean just thinking about it human developmentally. I'm a lot more directive with my young children than I am with, say, somebody who's in their twenties or thirties, who's been walking through life and (laughs) who's not not (laughs) my child, uh, who's been walking with me for a period of time. There's just a deeper level of trust. There's a, a deeper level of maturity in the relationship. There's more of a, I guess for me, there's more of a desire to, to seek out and lean into the wholehearted spaces versus my own desires and and even my own desires being more in alignment with with kingdom and father not totally or not completely or not 100 percent obviously but it just feels like there's that change there's that shifting there's the that deepening of relationship to where it's it's not as hands-on it's not as directive it's not as like, no, me grabbing my daughter's hand as she's about to put her hand on a burning stove, you know, to prevent her from scalding her hand mm-hmm. because she doesn't know any better versus right. the, I have gone through life and I have walked through some things and I have been burned by the fire. You know, I've walked through seasons of refining fire and and there's just more context to the relationship, I guess.
0: No, you're sharing about it. I was thinking of a psalm that says, don't be like the horse that needs bit and bridle. And mm. I forget the second part of that since this is a little more out of out of a memory, but I remember early in my journey that God was encouraging me to not need the bit and bridle. Let's you know, and the picture is of a horse that needs that constant control by the rider versus the mm-hmm. horse that rider that have become one, and the the rider just needs to lay a hand on the side of the horse's neck and it knows which way to go and it feels from the writer, how fast to go. And it's all that just comes out of a relationship that's more, more nudge-like. I think that's why I've landed on yeah. that. I think when we're young and when we're not seeing well and yet our hearts are really open to God and want him, then it sometimes he has to constrain us into the path that we're begging him to lead us on. And we're not sensitive enough to hear him say, go this way. So mm-hmm. I'll hem you in and kind of, help you get where you're wanting to go. It's certainly not making us go somewhere we don't want to go. It's not, that's not his nature, but it is. when we cried and prayed and said, God, I want this. I want that. Okay. Then it it does feel more, you you get into situations that force you to an answer that Mm -hmm. you probably wouldn't have chosen on your own. And so that's how I see it. And I, I like when it's more, it's more of a flow than it is a push. Mm -hmm. And I think God doesn't want to push. I I think the friendship of two two people walking on a path together is a better picture than you know a dog on a leash being being dragged yeah. down the sidewalk. So,
1: yeah. Oh, yeah. Like there's times where, you know, even over this last year, where I've been like. Ah, I'd be fine if you wanted to put the bit and bridle on again, Lord. Like, I'd be, I'd be totally okay with that. You'd you know? be fine for about a week. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They'd be going, this, this is no good. I need out of <laughs> this for sure. <laughs> oh, that's very true. That's very true. Uh, it's just interesting to think about. And I don't know, just the, the, the relationship development process, as because I, I think we, you know, there's the verses about the bit and bridle or being the ability to only drink milk when there's solid food that's out there that is to be digested and has a, a hardiness to it that lasts a lot longer. And, and it's not, it's not a bad thing. You know, I think about when I used to train horses growing up, there was, there was very much a stage where it was very directive and, and there was a not necessarily breaking the horse's will, but there was a, now this is, this is how we learn how to become one. There's some directive. There's some, there's some key things here in this process that if you don't learn them, then we can't have trust. We can't, we right. can't go out into the, the pasture without any round fences around us and not have a bridle on and be able to be okay without the horse taking off and me winding up on the dirt, you know? so. Um, so it's just, I think about just that development of relationship and and how it's okay, I guess, being at rest in each stage of that development too.
0: I think that's important to embrace the process, which is, man, yeah. sometimes it's it's got to be directive because that's where we are. And other times it's, no, God's wanting to teach us to just responsive to him and to what we see and... Having a, a greater sense of flow through our life than the whole. I need wisdom from God. What's He saying to me? And I don't. I don't know what to do next. And I. I, I do think it's more of, of that. But when you talk about being one with, you don't want to become one with the horse's ignorance if you're a horse trainer. I love that right. stuff about getting to the horse's heart. But it, you're right. It comes to we've got certain aims here we're wanting to get to with the horse. But you want to bring the mm-hmm. horse along in a way that eventually you have its heart. And yeah. You're both enjoying the moment together. I'm not much of a horse guy. I've never done anything with horses, but as I've heard some horse trainers I know talk about it, that the whole break in the horse thing was something that was more from the old West than it is a current thing in vogue today. But it is, there yeah. is a sense of the horse coming to the will of the rider that, that, mm-hmm. but coming to it out of a
1: wholeness of heart. Eventually you can get to the space too, where you and the h- horse trust one another because there's one of the horses that I broke when I was a kid and had for a, a long, long portion of my life. I mean, my, my dad even would say, and my dad was very much old school, like break the horse's will, you know, yeah. real, like very directive in the way that he would break horses. And yet he would watch me on this horse. And he's like, that horse rides completely different with you than anybody else that gets on him like he would anybody could jump on him because he was very kind but he and I just knew each other and trusted each other to where there were times where I didn't know what to do or I didn't know where to go and he did and so I had to let go of the reins. I had to let go of the control on my end and trust that he knew what he was doing or how to position his body or, or how to get up a hill that, to me, seemed way too steep for us to try to take on. And, and yet he knew. And so I had to let go of that and just invite him into taking the lead on it, which was a whole nother level of experience, to say the least. I like that. Best thing you heard this week. Gosh, I've got 12 of them. So they're going to
0: filter out in the coming year, probably. But th- this, is a good, this is a week for some really good stuff. But you sent me a podcast uh, one day saying, this is interesting. Brene Brown, we may talk about it a little bit more. Uh, an author she had on there, which I don't have his name. I hope you do so we can credit this guy. Yeah. Um, but in any case, what, in the very start, of the intro leading up to it, this little writer chit chat between two writers. And she said, she started talking about writing her first book for her critics. Mm-hmm. And how that was a less fulfilling experience than writing her subsequent books for her friends. And it's a book that I'm playing with writing at the moment, doing some stuff with, and that really touched my heart. I, it's easy in this book to write to the critics, to write to the naysayers, to keep leveling your arguments or, you know, showing why that can't work. Instead of writing to people who are already saying, yeah, I'm in, help me learn how to do this. And yeah, there's gonna be people that read it and don't like it and argue, want to argue with it. And I would just notice the interesting Jesus who didn't seem to do a lot of that, and hmm. Paul who seems to. Paul, the whole we're reading Romans still, and Paul's always like, "Here's the argument, and here's why you're wrong." And it it's fine. It's not like you can't not. It's not like you can't do that. But I I just that whole idea of writing to hearts that already are hungry, instead of trying to get someone who can't see to see something that they're, they're, it's not in their frame of reference to even understand, much less be convinced of. So that that mm. kind of gives shape to this actual book that I'm working on right now. I'm going, okay, I'm taking that with me. I'm writing at the top of the page, write to your friends, write to those who are already hungry. And when people are hungry enough, they'll come along.
1: And the author we were talking about is Dr. Sean, and then it's Ginnwright, Ginwright, G-I-N-W-R-I-G-H-T. The podcast is called uh, The Four Pivots, Reimagining Justice and Reimagining Ourselves is the name of that podcast.
0: And we'll link it at the bottom of, so those of you who want to go hear it. The only problem, I can only find on Spotify.
1: <laughs> Spotify
0: That's, is a nightmare. I don't know why it's not on iTunes or whatever. I don't even well, have don't Spotify. C- so we had to let off Sarah's phone, but... I guess she sold out to Spotify, huh? That's exclusive. She, did. she has exclusive rights. Because she doesn't have enough money. So she needs to get more money to be exclusive. Ah, this stuff just makes me tired.
1: <laughs> no, I I really like that though, just the I the idea of writing to people that are in, that are connecting with it, that are that have that hunger, that have that desire. One of the biggest things when we're first starting in the counseling world is that we're advised is never outwork your client. Mm -hmm. And so never, never come into it with a stronger desire for change than your client has, because then as you start pressuring them or as they, you know, there'll be this need for change to occur. And if they're not ready for it, then it becomes invasive. Then you're, you're going right by consent and going into more of a directive relationship, which is never where you want a counseling relationship to go. And I don't know. It just and in light of that, you know, as we're for me, one of the big things that really stood out was this idea versus l- that um that the other author brings up is talking about a lens versus a mirror. And the lens is what we perceive, it's the way that we perceive the world, it's the way we see the world, it's the things that we filter, and yet taking time to do the harder work or the more deliberate work of looking in a mirror and allowing ourselves to see ourselves and work through that process. And I, I, man, I really liked that idea of, cause in count in the counseling world, we talk a lot about understanding your lens. How do you see the world? What are your thoughts? Where do those thoughts come from? What are the, you know, how does that get created? And yet the vulnerability and the authenticity that it takes to sit in front of a mirror, Versus just seeing the way that we see the world, but actually sitting in a mirror and looking back at ourselves and taking an honest evaluation of who we are, that takes a lot of courage. You know, even thinking about our earlier conversation about relationship with Father and just that deepening of that relationship, there were times where he would like hold up the mirror, like just like, (laughs) like just a little jerk. Like he would flip it up or like twist it around really quick. And and for me, I'd be like, ah, you know, kind of this like, I don't know if I'm ready for that. I don't know if I have the the resilience or the foundation to be able to pause and and look at that mirror with that level of vulnerability. And yet the more his love has won my heart over, the more at rest and even intentionality that I put into having seasons where I'm looking into that mirror and connecting with, Lord, what's going on inside of me? Or who have you created me to be? or Or what are you moving and shaping right now?
0: Yeah, I I like the whole idea of the the mirror, particularly when something gets revealed to us. I think we played with that in the So You Don't Want to Church anymore book with with Jake. He would learn something from John and then immediately go apply it to everybody else. So it became the lens with which he judged people around him and tried to change people around him. Yes. And John was just saying, "Hey, let it let it change you inside. Don't don't worry about, you know, changing the whole Sunday school program for everybody else just because you had an insight about it." <laughs> And I thought of that. I thought about how easy it is as a preacher, or a teacher, or writer, or blogger, or whatever, to see something from God, write about it for other people, and never have reflected on, okay, Jesus, why did you show me that? What does what this unfurl about me? And some of the questions that this author in his conversation with Brene was talking about is like, what are the conversations you avoid? What are the mm-hmm. thoughts going on in your head at night that you run away from rather than process, even if you need someone else to help you process them? And I thought yeah. that pragmatic of what are you running from? If, if we'd have brought that into our marriage 30 years ago, 40 years ago, I don't know what that would have done for Sarah. If, mm. if, if the ethic was not we're coping, we're surviving, but what are the, what are the things I'm running from? What are, the, what are the dark thoughts? What are the broken places? What are the, the questions I don't want to be asked? And it's very telling when you take a, and it's not, he even draws this line about people saying, well, it's too selfish. You're going to focus on yourself instead of the, the justice needs in the world and those kind of things. But he keeps coming back to where does healing begin if it doesn't begin in us? It doesn't begin out there. It's not fixing someone else. And I love that emphasis right here on, because yes. we talk about, you know, Bob Prater talks a lot about the lens, you know, get, get your lens right, viewing lens differently instead of, okay, well, the first thing I'm going to do when I think of a lens now is use it as a mirror. What mm. does this speak to in me? What does this change in me? What does this ask? And when God speaks, it's not, ooh, that'll make a good blog or a good podcast. Let's talk about that. And I know as a pastor, I look back when I used to do the Sunday morning sermon, you have this great thought. You teach it on Sunday morning, and then you've never even lived it. Not, Not one moment, and then the next week you're on to the next thought for the next sermon, and how much everything became a lens. And very few things were... A reflection of what's going on in here through the eyes of God, and I, that's how I see the mirror. I don't see the mirror as look how ugly and warped I am, but what does yeah. God see in me? Both the good, both the mm-hmm. the gifts and the sensitivities and the things that He loves, but also what does God see here that's still warped a bit? The the, the untangling of the Christmas lights, since that's the season for that. Uh, yeah, you know, letting that stuff happen. So I I I love that perspective a lot.
1: And it's interesting because I, I love the idea of staying with it for a little while because I, I agree with you as far as the – it's so quick to have like this this brilliant thought that's going to generate lots of clicks and it's this great quote. And and yet to take the time to allow that to really work and manifest through your life, that's a very different story than, than coming up with these cool ideas and getting on to the next thing and just staying ahead of the – Staying ahead of the need of the people that you're providing the service to. I mean,
0: oof. Yeah, even think of what what am I running from right now? What am I what yes. what what thought comes up that I just keep outpacing instead of relaxing into because it's makes me feel ashamed or it makes me feel this or makes me feel that. that those are the places where God works well. Or even just the things that make me tear up and people always try and hide their tears. And then, then you're, then you're piling on. So you get out of the teary eyed feeling and thought when that's the very place where the Holy spirit's putting his finger on things oftentimes. And if we can take a look inside and invite the healing from the Holy spirit to begin to manifest itself there, then some really good things can happen. But if we keep running ahead of it and we're never going to find God's pace and we're never going to find the freedom that God wants us to have there.
1: But think about when you were a pastor and you were in it and you were providing this service to these people, did you feel like you had space and time to hold some of those things to really allow them to marinate and work in your life? Or did you, I mean, did you feel like you had the time to do that, to let it be worked out in you? Well, I'd say, first of all, I didn't have the inclination to, because, you know, my okay. life was
0: my life was lived around the next sermon, the next teaching, the next class, and so, one, I didn't have the inclination to say, ooh, I should think about that for me. Yeah. But to go back to the pace of it, my goodness, no. I, I've all thought about that, particularly when I grew up in the serious believers went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. So, you got a, three sermons a week of things and applications, and you're supposed to. And the most ineffective way to have transformation happen, because you really need the space— to be able to take something inside and hold it. I mean, th- something yeah. I'm holding right now with God over the past, the last month and a half, I really have the space to do that now. Where When I, I think yeah. about it as a pastor, no, that never would have happened. The the program, the needs, the problems that were coming at you were just too fast to, in and almost felt selfish to indulge in that kind of introspection.
1: And I think that was, I felt very similar in my roles in ministry in the fact that, there wasn't that permission to to really pause and and do the work yourself I and mean, that it was a oh no that like that's great content for other people you should get it out there like get it get in to where other people can wrestle with it but then you need to be on this exact same side you need to be spending time in the word you need to be having your quiet time so that you can get the next nugget so that you're ready to go again when the next time slot comes up or when the next deadline comes up and it's like oh my gosh like
0: Yeah, and the whole passion is moving them somewhere instead of, no, letting stuff happen in here that other people then want to partake of or follow or embrace or enjoy.
1: I mean, you were in ministry for 30 years, professional ministry for 30 years. Is that right? Oh, come
0: on. Let's not talk about my sins. Let's talk about yours.
1: (laughs) I I was only a
0: paid professional in a local congregation for 20 years. Don't make okay. Now I've been okay. you know I've been living off writing and speaking and teaching and doing things in the world so I could be then 48
1: years so I don't know which. So in the first 20 years of of you living out this life did you ever get asked a gen, like the genuine question of what are you running from? No. And then given you the support to actually think through that.
0: No, I think I would have said I'm running from anything. I mean the thing about when you're running like Sarah running from pain I yeah, she'd be the last one to see that. That's what was happening. Yeah, I don't think you know it. It's just this intuitive feeling, and you're trying to run toward joy or less pressure or whatever. So you don't really know what you're running from. Mm-hmm. I think it takes a certain amount of something from Jesus to be able to stop and say, "What am I running from? What what, mm-hmm. conver- what conversation am I resisting? Yes. What person do I not want to talk to because that might be challenging?" And yeah, the, the, he had some great questions there to contemplate why we don't use stuff as a mirror. We just use it to judge other people with. Mm. And we're notorious for that. The second one I love too, he talked about connections going from transactional to transformational. And I mean, we've talked about that a lot on the podcast, particularly with God. So, so much of our, I think, fake discipleship is transactional. Mm-hmm. And then finding a transformational relationship with God. But one of the things he says about that is before you're going to try and solve a problem with a group of people, have enough conversation to humanize those who see it differently than you do. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, you know, that's, I never understood completely when I was doing bridge builder stuff, why that first, I thought it was the seminar thing I did to help people get the common ground. But now I look on the grid of that saying, you know, we sat around a table with 30 people that were polar opposites of an issue we were going to try and resolve together. And I did a common ground thinking, kind of walked them through a different way to look at problems. And at the end of it, I, I, the main thing that happened is the other side was humanized to them. They became human beings who, albeit may see things differently, and I don't like their agenda, but they're parents of children in the school like I am, and they care about their kid as much as I care about my kid. And that changes things. I think about some of the yeah. stuff we talked about in the last couple of weeks, when you go to Washington, D.C. and just everybody who disagrees with you is Jezebel, that we had to cast demons out of, then you haven't humanized people who, yes, see the world differently than you do. Mm-hmm. And not everything they see is wrong just because it doesn't conform to your way of doing stuff because your way of doing stuff has also got some wrong in it. And yeah. you're completely oblivious to that when you've done the us versus them thing. So I I love that whole idea of humanizing
1: the person you're at odds with. Yeah. Isn't it a, I'm trying to remember which cult, I think it comes out of Middle Eastern culture where it it talks about basically the, the idea that if I have a meal with my enemy, like the power of just sitting down and having a meal or having a conversation with my enemy can, can potentially completely eliminate the need for a war. And I mean, just that, again the idea of humanizing the people that are across from us the people that we would try to place in the us versus them categories and yet that's not where in my mind anyway that's not where human movement and change happens anyway if we put them in an us versus them thing then we're still we're still minimizing we're still diminishing we're still potentially harming steamrolling a group of human beings yes. on the other side of the argument. We're gonna be in war mode, right? we for Correct. us, for them, we're in war mode. And there's
0: enough scripture like to go to war for whatever that we've been talking about the last few weeks. I got this email from so much. I really, actually, this was on the blog. Perry wrote this. He said, Thanks for reading what you received from Mike. We read a letter from Mike on last week's podcast. Yeah. I wish there were people who think like him near me in Abilene, Texas. I'd like to be part more of a local community and connect with people who think like he appears to you like you and Kyle do. Best thing I've heard recently, (laughs) I like when our (laughs) other people have joined the club. We will stay crippled in the darkness if we cannot feel compassion for the heart that is the darkest. Isn't that something? We'll stay crippled in the darkness if we can't feel compassion for the heart that is the darkest. And I just Mm -hmm. thought, wow, that's that's really, again, one of those 12 things. So I slipped this one extra in on this one. But I, I really love that thought when I'm dealing with something difficult in my life, even be able to stop and say, okay, who do I think has the darkest heart here? And do I care about them? Because Jesus, I think Jesus invites out of the war mode of the Old Testament. And I think a lot of people miss that. when He says, love your enemies and do good to those who despitefully use you. Jesus asking us to do something that is not innate to the human spirit. It's just not, because no, bullying not. and fighting back, I'm pushed. Like, you just go out and push somebody in the chest. I'd swear if they're big enough, they're going to want to hit you back. <laughs> There's nothing even between you. I just, I felt pushed. I'm going to push back. I, I do that with the little puppy, man. She comes running at me and I shove her away. And she just comes back with more ferocity. So it's kind of a dog-like mentality, I guess. But it's <laughs> it's kind of fun to play with when you've got a puppy. But in humanity's sake, to humanize what... The one writer, the popular phrase, you, you, there's no one you wouldn't love if you heard their story. Mm-hmm. And I find that that's true. When you ask people, yeah. just even you're at odds with or just not just, hey, get with them. Hey, what's your story? What's going on? What are you thinking through this? Yeah. Uh, so I think that humanizing thing, we, we miss that so much because when you think Christian, non-Christian, it's kind of that Old Testament Jewish God's people versus pagan. Everyone else is pagan. Mm-hmm. Everyone else is heathen. Um, you don't have to humanize the heathen or the pagan. You can just put them in a big block of people that are enemies of God and thus enemies of yours. But if they're enemies of yours, Jesus told you to love them, which if Jesus asking us to do something his father isn't already doing, that would be kind of a absurd thought. And even mm. in that same passage in Luke where it says, love your enemies, it says, for even God is kind and gracious to the wicked and the ungrateful. Mm. Now, I never heard that in Sunday school. That... <laughs> No. That, that verse never came up, surprisingly. Onward, Christian soldiers, and we're going to win the battle for the minds of the people, whatever, instead of, no, no, even God is kind and gracious to the wicked and the ungrateful. So why wouldn't you be? Mm-hmm. And so Jesus is not asking us to be something his father isn't. And so when we're praying, like, like that one woman who told me in her prayer time up in York and one day, she, God, God spoke to her and said, why do you address me as if I'm your adversary? And I know we do that to God, and we don't understand, and we want things our way, and he's not doing them that. I, I think God would just say, why are you praying with them like they're your adversary? Mm-hmm. They're not. You don't wrestle against flesh and blood. That's not where the battle is. If you're, if you're going to be in battle mode, it's not against people. It's not against people's mm-hmm. darkness. It's compassion for the darkest person in it. I thought it was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. This came from a friend of mine in Idaho. who's from Dwight. He said, I've enjoyed the last two podcasts. I thought I would offer perspective. The founders of America were a mix of men. John Adams, by all accounts, a devout Christian. Thomas Jefferson, a deist. Ben Franklin, an atheist. Together, they reached to what they perceived as secular injustices. They saw the attack of their liberties as unjust and immoral to the point that they were willing to put their lives on the line. And I, I love that they tried to craft a government that wasn't leaning to one of those sides or the other. How are we fair to all of us so that the environment we create is fair to each of us being able to embrace our... That's the ideal of America. It's not get back to a Christian nation because our founders didn't go there. The Constitution doesn't go there. Our support for a Constitution is something larger than my side gets to
1: prevail over your side. And I think both people on the left and right have forgotten that. Well, that's, we were talking about that in our sociology class last week about how when Abraham Lincoln, when the North ended up winning the civil war, then he's like, okay, now the really hard work begins of reunifying and bringing us back together as a nation, or we've, or the revolutionary war was all for naught. If we can't, if we can't forgive and reunite brother with brother and father with son, then it's all for naught anyway. This experiment is going to fail before it even gets started. Yeah. And that's a challenge. It is. It really is. to have To have that humility of, especially the ones with power, to start giving power back to the people that they just won power from that's, woo, woo. <laughs> that's very countercultural.
0: <laughs> that That's the challenge. Whether, whether it's white male privilege, whether it's white Christian, Protestant, uh, evangelical, whatever is to share. And I, I don't think it takes as much courage once you humanize. but Maybe the courage is sitting down yes. with someone and humanizing them enough. And he talked mm-hmm. about instead of looking for problems, look for possibilities, uh, dream what we want to create, not what we want to fix. That, that asks some pretty good questions. And the last one was from frenzy to flow.
1: Mm-hmm. What'd you think of that one? Kyle? That one to me immediately brought up the idea of the tyranny of the urgent, to move from this scattered, crazy. Basically, like I, I've been seeing these funny memes that have been coming up on because I'm because I'm a counselor and I do I look up like research and that kind of thing. They've got my algorithm programmed to kyle must want therapist memes you know <laughs> and so i get these memes and i literally was watching this one and it was like uh it was this whitewater rafter kayaker excuse me he's in a kayak and it's he's doing some like big water class five like major epic water and it was and the the words over it was my therapist told me to go with the flow and this is me going this is me going with the flow and this is the flow. And literally this guy is like getting demolished by the, by the flow. Um, so there was, no and, flow. No, there was no
0: difference between his frenzy and his flow.
1: There there's no difference between his frenzy and his flow. Oh, uh, that's something I laughed at that because I was like, yeah, that's, you know, some, it feels like often at times that this, this world in this frenzy is that class five whitewater that we can't, there's no way to get through. It's just going to suck us down and throw us wherever we want. But that's not, that's not where he landed with it. And I there's a I like the idea of flow, especially in the context of being in the here and now, being in the present. We've talked a lot about um, how rest, love, and play draws us to the here and now and how that allows us to be attuned to what's going on around us and the opportunities and the invitations that Father might be giving us right here, right now, and how we would miss those things if we're in that frenzy, if we're in that Space that isn't allowing us to look around us and enjoy it.
0: He even said we were addicted to frenzy. Our culture is.
1: Oh yeah, and I think it is all
0: part of running from pain. I think it's all part of running from yes. fear. It's all part of you know frenzied life, busy. I don't have to. I don't have the space to have a mirror because oh, it's no all new to a day, and then get back to bed and night. Try and get to sleep, and a lot of that mirror stuff tries to happen at night when you're trying to sleep and. <laughs> You know so I think definitely moving from frenzy to flow and not a five class A whatever you said rapid I don't know what the terms are not not that's not God's kind of flow and it's it, sure. it, there can be tense and tough times when you're following Jesus no doubt about mm-hmm. it but yeah I've had the question a lot because I I said in a podcast or two a while back that Except for the grace of God, I might have gone down a road that I, I didn't go down. And so I've been asked yeah. in private conversations, I've had a lot of, so why, why do you think you didn't and they did? What, what did they miss that you didn't? And I don't know how to answer that question without, you know, thinking things that I don't think are appropriate to think necessarily. Like, well, I'm just smarter or I'm just this. or I'm, I'm I don't go there. I'm just, I don't know why. I'm grateful that God nudged me. I'm grateful that I heard the nudge. And I said, Sarah and I are reading Romans these days, and I read something in Romans 9 that I thought, because mm. the same question was being asked, how did Israel miss it? What well, here's Israel. They got all the promises of God, the heritage of God's blessing, the miracles that happened among the Exodus, whatever, uh, in Israel's history. How did Israel miss it? And here's what Paul said. And this, these are the these are the lost chapters of Romans. <laughs> up to up to eight is fabulous. And then twelve picks it up again. And you never you really hear stuff from eight, nine, and ten or ten, nine, ten nine, and nine, ten, and eleven. You know, it's about Israel and grafting and who knows. This way it said why did Israel miss it? And Israel, who seemed so interested in reading and talking about what God was doing, they missed it. How could they miss it? This is in the message, by the way. It says, Because instead of trusting God, they took over. They were so absorbed in what they themselves were doing. They were, oh, excuse me. They were so absorbed in their God projects that they didn't notice God right in front of them. Hmm. And I guess if, say, you know, why did you, and I guess. Because you notice God right in front of you. You, you. you haven't, I mean, I. Yes. God knows for 20 years, I didn't notice God right in front of me. I was busy with my God projects. I, I was absorbed in what Wayne wanted for God and out of God. And so I was taking roads, completely missing that nudging. And then last mm-hmm. night we read this in Romans 11. And he talks about the small minority who seemed to remain faithful to God, not only in Israel's history— but even as Paul's getting toward the end of his ministry, so many people, we have all these amazing 5,000 people at Pentecost and more of the next, or 3,000 and then more than 5,000 after that. And you got all these mass movements toward God. And yet, toward the end of his journey, he even says in Second Timothy, all in Asia have forsaken me, which hmm. means the gospel too. That's what Paul's talking about. They started yeah. and, like the parable of the sword, they didn't make it far. And so in Romans 11, Paul's writing about this group and he says, they're holding on. Not because of what they think they're going to get out of it, but because they're convinced of God's grace and purpose in choosing them. Hmm. And I, to me, that was the counterpoint to why Israel missed it and why other people don't miss it is because, not because they're looking for what they get out of it. It, If you've got to get out of it, what you think you need from God or from culture or from whatever, then you're going to keep missing it. But when you're just convinced of God's grace and purpose in calling you, then it's going to make it easy. It's going to put you more in flow space instead of frenzy space. And I just, I go, you know, if I could describe anything, it would be those two things. It would be beginning of my journey very much into God projects, reading about God, knowing a lot about God, trying to get God to do, but all of it under the grid of what would benefit me. And then the second group is going, no, it's not what they think they can get out of it. They're just convinced of God's grace and purpose in choosing them and can then walk through mm-hmm. what comes with him instead of trying to save themselves, which is always the thing that sidetracks us. I will save myself. I, I, I called out to God. He didn't mm-hmm. come. Now it's up to me. It's... Jesus in John 12, what, should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? Well, of course you'd want to be saved from the crucifixion. Who wouldn't? Yeah. But instead he arrives to, God, glorify yourself. If it's through the crucifixion, and if, if we, when I pray that prayer, when I'm in, okay, God, I'm in this and I don't know what to do, glorify yourself. Whatever it puts me through is fine. If, if you're, and I don't mean glory, like I know some people, say I hate that term glory to God because like God wants to torture us so he can look really good. And mm-hmm. I don't see God's glory that way. I see God, the glory of God is the beauty of his character demonstrated in the world. I me mean, that's what it is. It's just, it's not God's desire to be a Kardashian or a, you know, Britney Spears. <laughs> and you look at me, I'm just fabulous. You know, it's not that. Yeah. It's God's glory is his character that gets to dwell in us and God gets to sort out some of the twistedness of our Christmas lights so that we can bear some of that glory and some of the creation he put in us from the beginning. Yeah. Before it got twisted.
1: Well, and I think of the quote that John Eldridge made very popular talking about how the glory of God is, is man fully alive. I always resonated with that because to me that that means that there's a living and active God that fully loves us and is committed to seeing his beloved experience the wholehearted life that he sacrificed himself for. And he's still very much a part of that. It's still very much an active. That to me is great news. That's exciting to me because if, as I become to, if as as I'm able to manifest and live out of who God's created me to be even more, that points back to him because there's no way I could do that on my own. There's no way I could be where I'm at today. If there hadn't been a collision of divine intervention, there's no sure. way. Absolutely. Yeah. And so to, to be able to, even in, in situations where I'm talking with a friend and they're like, how, how have you gotten to have the experiences you've had, or how have you been able to hold on to joy through some of this stuff that you've endured? And it's like, Well, let me talk you tell you about the person who saved my life, you know, like let let me tell you about how he worked that out and is still working out that salvation in me. And I hope we understand
0: that quote, man fully alive is also includes women, first of all. Second of all correct. Yes. (laughs) Second of all, it really isn't fully alive on our terms. No. Because I think that's what most of us pursue. We want a God who makes me fully alive in my fleshy, selfish, twisted way. Instead of, no, no, we don't even see that that is a distortion itself.
1: I liked where you took that, like that, as far as like being alive, because there's so many people that, like the author of Eat, Pray, Love, she talks about this like fully alive experience where she leaves her husband, leaves her kids, and like goes through this like whole thing about her becoming fully alive. And it always felt off to me. Like I, I liked the heart some of the heart behind it but it was so selfish Mm. like it was so self-focused where like when i think of somebody fully alive or coming fully alive there they are dwelling the fruits of the spirit but they're also making the world around them a better place it's not leaving well i'm becoming fully alive but there's a trail of destruction behind me of all the people that had to suffer the consequences of me becoming fully alive and it's like oh man that that's an interesting one to navigate i feel like being who god made us to be and the f-
0: increasing freedom of that mm. is all about things that we, we didn't necessarily see that we wouldn't have gone this route and then you you see how what it, what you really does to make us fully alive you go oh god i never saw that mm. and i think that's helpful if we can understand being fully alive is not getting what we want. It's not getting what we need out of it. It's letting God be God and us be his children. And then finding out what that createdness in us really does for us and for the world around us, which is beautiful. Thank you for traveling with us today on The God Journey. You can join this conversation by visiting thegodjourney.com.